Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Hi, Bed Crimers. How are you doing today? To anyone new, welcome to the channel. Thank you for checking it out. Do me a favor if after listening to or watching the video, you find you enjoyed it or learned something, smash the like button. Now, let's get started. Today, I'm going to do something I haven't done in a while, and that is give updates on several true crime cases. Sadly, because there seems to be an endless stream of horrific crimes, it's hard to stay up to date on all of them. I'm going to share a synopsis of each crime and then let you know where things stand as of today. I will review the cases in this order, the Alec Murdoch trial, the Delphi case, and then the case of the four slain University of Idaho students. If you aren't interested in some of these cases, feel free to fast forward to whichever case rocks your boat. Alec Murdoch is on trial and is charged with taking the lives of his wife, Margaret, and his son, Paul, back on June 7th of 2021. He's currently jailed in the South Carolina state capitol on a $7 million bond. After this trial, he will then stand trial again on roughly 100 financial and drug-related charges. Something scary happened today in court. Suddenly, just before lunch, the courthouse had to be evacuated because of what might have been a bomb threat. That is the rumor. No doubt this was a scary event for the jurors who are already on a high-profile case where a man from a powerful legal family, some have called it a legal dynasty, is on trial, and a family that formerly held a tight grip on the power and the law in South Carolina. On Tuesday and earlier today, which is day 13 of the trial, Murdoch and his defense team were dealt several blows to their case. These occurred when one of Alex's former colleagues at PMPED law firm, Ronnie Crosby, and Alex Paralegal as well, were on the stand and listened to the Snapchat video that Paul Murdoch recorded at the family's dog kennels at 8.44 p.m. on the night of the crime. Both Crosby and the paralegal testified that 100% they believe the third voice heard on the video belongs to Alec Murdoch. Crosby and this paralegal are now the third and fourth people within Murdoch's inner circle to say that 100% that is his voice in the video. This is incredibly damning because one, Alex told the police he was not at the dog kennels on June 7th prior to finding the victims, and two, it is believed that Paul and his mother Margaret died just about five minutes after the Snapchat video was recorded in an ambush-style attack. This points to Alec Murdoch possibly being the perpetrator. If he wasn't the perpetrator, you'd have to wonder why whoever harmed Paul and Margaret didn't also harm him. Crosby was a very emotional witness, which translates into a very likable witness for the jurors. He expressed a great fondness for Paul Murdaugh and teared up when talking about him. Crosby also came across as very credible. He was clear about what exactly he said when he was presented 
With evidence that Alec stole from their law firm and from his clients, Crosby told the jurors that when he was presented with the overwhelming evidence of wrongdoing, he used the F word and stated he had more than one drink that night as he read through the documents. The people in the courthouse found this humorous and giggled a little bit, despite Crosby being dead serious. The chief financial officer of the PMPED law firm, which, by the way, no longer exists because of this scandal, was also on the stand. The law firm was reconfigured after the crime under a different name, no doubt, in an attempt to disassociate from the Murdoch name. The CAFO is named Jeannie Seconder, and she went through many of the instances when Alec Murdoch stole money from his clients and from the firm. These instances went all the way back to 2011 and amounted to millions of dollars. The chief takeaways from her testimony were that Murdoch was a prolific thief, stealing from many of his clients, people he'd sworn an oath to represent with integrity, and that Murdoch was also a liar who deceived his law partners, whom Seconder described as being like in a brotherhood. Seconder even shared an instance of Alec Murdoch being mistakenly given a check for more than $100,000 that was supposed to go to his brother Randy Murdoch instead of handing that check back to the CFO or giving it to its rightful owner, his brother, Alec kept the check, then went to the CFO and told her that he accidentally misplaced it. A new check was cut and handed to Murdoch. He then cashed it. Then, a year later, Murdoch cashed the original check as well, and that's when the CFO discovered the original error. Murdoch was busted. Seconder also stated that one of Alec's greatest skills as a lawyer was his ability to BS his clients. She also said he was very good at manipulating and pressuring insurance companies into large payouts. Another powerful witness on Tuesday was Megan Fletcher, who is a sled trace evidence analyst and forensic expert. Fletcher testified that gunshot residue, or GSR, was found on the clothing Alec Murdoch was wearing on the night of June 7th when the police arrived after he called 911 to report his wife and son's deaths. If you're following this case, then you likely know that Alec was captured on another of Paul's Snapchat videos from June 7th, wearing a blue shirt and pants. But mysteriously, when the police showed up at the Murdoch property, Alec was wearing a white t-shirt, dark green cargo shorts, and a pair of yellow and red tennis shoes. We also heard from Alec's mother's caretaker, a sweet lady named Shelley Smith, on Monday. She said Alec showed up at his parents' house on the evening of June 7th wearing a white t-shirt, dark green cargo shorts, and cloth Sperry-style boat shoes. Smith also said Alec stayed just 20 minutes there, but that he later came to her after the crime and told her that he was at his parents' house on June 7th for 30 to 40 minutes. Basically, Murdoch was telling Shelley without saying it outright, that she better agree with him that he was at his parents' house for a much longer amount of time than she recalls. Note that Shelley Smith also talked about an ATV 
being moved after the crime from Alec's parents' smokehouse to the main house. Someone in a chat on law and crime today brought up the possibility that Alec could have burned the clothing he was wearing earlier on June 7th, the blue shirt and the long pants, and likely also the cloth, Sperry-style shoes in this smokehouse. I wonder if Alec Murdoch decided to wear cloth shoes that night for that reason. I thought this speculation had some merit. I kept wondering why this ATV and the smokehouse were mentioned in the testimony. Now that makes sense. Back to Fletcher and the testing of Alec's clothing. When Fletcher tested Alec and his clothing, GSR showed up on the white t-shirt, the green shorts, and on his hands. GSR was not on his garish red and yellow tennis shoes. Sorry, but those tennis shoes clearly did not match his dark green khaki shorts, and they screamed midlife crisis to me. I'm so bad. Please forgive me. I have to infuse some humor even in a case as dark as this one. Note that the Sperry-style shoes Smith described Alec wearing seem to have vanished. Where are they? Did they go up in that smokehouse? What would have been found on them? GSR was also found on the latch part of the driver's side seatbelt in the truck Alec was driving on June 7th. GSR was also detected on the lining of a blue raincoat poncho that was found crumpled up in a ball in one of Alec's parents' closets in September of 2021. The GSR on the inside of the poncho suggests that perhaps one or more of the weapons used in the crime might have been wrapped in that poncho. The caretaker, Shelley Smith, testified that she saw Alec carry what appeared to be a balled-up blue tarp upstairs in his parents' house after the crime. To her, it looked like a large blue tarp. However, when the rain poncho was displayed for the jury, it was the same color of a standard blue tarp. Also, this thing was so long that it would go down to the knees of even a very tall, large person and it had to be placed on two tables, according to the GSR expert, when it was tested. That's how big it was. So the question is, could Smith have mistaken that large blue rain poncho with a tarp? And was there something hidden inside the poncho when Alec carried it upstairs? Is it alternatively possible that if Alec Murdoch is the perpetrator, that he cleverly hid the blue rain poncho inside of a blue tarp. I think that's a possibility. Later this afternoon, a SLED forensic expert took the stand, Brian Hudak, as well as an FBI forensic expert named Falkovsky. As I was listening to this back, I realized what that name sounds like. Oh my God. I hope I pronounced it right. They were there to talk about Alec Murdoch Chevy Suburban which he drove on the night of the crime. Hudak helped recover the Chevy's entertainment system and OnStar module. Both devices were encrypted when the experts got to them. It took the FBI roughly a year 
to decode and analyze these items. Folkowski was able to determine when the Chevy was placed in and out of park. What he could not tell was when the Chevy was being driven, as in when it was moving. The analysis showed that the car's entertainment center became active at around 9.04 p.m. on June 7, 2021. The vehicle was cranked and taken out of gear at 9.06 p.m., which would be about 16 minutes after the prosecutors believe Paul and Margaret died. The vehicle was then placed in park at 9.22 p.m. This indicates to me that when Murdoch arrived at his parents' house, it was 9.22 p.m. So he made that drive from Moselle to his parents' house in 16 minutes. Normally, that drive takes about 18 minutes. The car was then taken out of park at 9.43 p.m. This indicates to me that this is likely when Alec left his parents and drove back home. This timeline supports what Alec's mother's caretaker, Shelley Smith, said about Alec only spending 20 minutes at his mother's bedside that night. Murdoch appears to have made it home by 10.01 p.m. because that's when his car was back in park. And you may recall that he dialed 911 at 10.07 p.m., to report finding Paul and Margaret dead near the dog kennels. Because no one actually saw him, this case is based wholly on circumstantial evidence. Alec Murdoch's fate depends on how the 12 jurors interpret the circumstantial evidence. The burden of proof is squarely on the state, meaning the prosecution has to prove to the jurors that Murdoch committed the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. All 12 jurors must agree on the verdict. If there are multiple charges, they must consider each charge separately. If the jury cannot reach a unanimous decision, then it will become a hung jury and a mistrial. If that happens, the solicitor's office will decide whether to try the case again in front of a new jury. Murdoch is not facing the death penalty. Instead, the state prosecutors are seeking life in prison without parole. If Murdoch is found guilty, the jury will be dismissed and the judge will begin the sentencing proceedings. In South Carolina, sentencing usually follows immediately after the reading of the verdict. Moving on to the Delphi case, yesterday the attorneys for suspect Richard Allen asked a judge for more time and for his trial to be delayed. The court filing claims the defense has yet to receive all the evidence from the state, and it is saying that it won't be prepared for a February 17, 2023 hearing on whether Allen should continue to be held without bail. The defense say they expect to receive the remaining evidence by February 10th which is this upcoming Friday. But because there will likely be so many documents, they don't think they can prepare in time for that February 17th hearing. The defense also asked for the March 20th of 2023 trial date to be pushed back. We learned earlier in January that the judge overseeing the case decided to draw the jury from Allen County, 
but still hold the trial in Carroll County. As with the Idaho case, this case has a gag order in place. Finally, moving on to the case of the four slain University of Idaho students, Zana Cronodal, her boyfriend Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonsalves, and Madison Mogan. Let's not forget that these four human beings were precious to their families and friends, and they're more than just beautiful faces in photos. As suspect Brian Koberger, who is innocent until proven guilty, sits in a jail cell awaiting his preliminary hearing and a wide-ranging court-ordered gag order remains in place, the only news we're getting is from unnamed sources said to be close to the investigation. But Koberger is such a complex character, and his behaviors on November 13th of 2022, post the crime, are so curious that plenty of discussions continue about the case. Here's one that I found particularly interesting. Psychotherapist and criminal profiler John Kelly, who has interviewed many serialists, appeared on Fox News on Tuesday. Kelly is thinking that Brian Koberger, if he is the perpetrator, may have deliberately left the K-bar sheath behind at the crime scene in an attempt to mislead investigators. Kelly explained it like this. If you took a pistol out of your holster, wouldn't you put it back in? I don't know anyone who wouldn't. And if I went fishing and had to take my knife out, I would put it back in the sheath, end quote. That makes a lot of sense to me. Of course, we don't know what state of mind the perpetrator was in during his frenzied attack. Kelly made a brilliant point that I haven't heard anyone else express. We know Koberger was obsessive over his strict vegan diet. We heard from an aunt of his that he insisted she use new pots and pans to prepare his meals so that his food was not contaminated by utensils that had touched meat. Because of this, Kelly believes that Koberger likely hid the weapon somewhere it could not contaminate his clothes or his car. Kelly said, and I quote, you're such a clean vegan who's obsessive compulsive about what you eat and everything else, just the hygiene of carrying a bloody weapon around, wearing it somewhere on your person as you get out of the house, end quote. Kelly also pointed out that survivor Dylan M. did not mention seeing the weapon in the description shared in the affidavit about the masked figure clad in black clothing with bushy eyebrows that she saw. Kelly stated, and I quote, the girl didn't say anything about seeing a knife. Did he put it in his clothes somewhere and have blood all over? End quote. Per Kelly, the sheath could have been left behind purposely after it was thoroughly wiped down. Of course, we know that whoever left that sheath there missed a spot on the sheath because the button snap is where the single-source DNA was found. Kelly feels it's possible Koberger left the sheath, which has the K-Bar, USMC, and the United States Marine Corps Eagle Globe and Anchor Insignia to try and point blame towards someone in the military. Kelly said, and I quote, This is staging 101. They're going to look at this, 
and they're going to think it's a military guy that did this. Some guy with some kind of training who lives up the road. He may have thought this was the perfect ruse. Again, he's no genius. His ruse in staging set him up to get caught. End quote. And I have to say that this is what everyone was saying right after it was announced that a K-bar was believed to be the style of object used to harm the students. People were speculating right in the beginning that this had to be a military man, a soldier, or a hunter. Per Kelly, Koberger's belief that he could misguide investigators could also explain why he is rumored to have asked the police when he was taken into custody, who else did you arrest? The other info I wanted to share on this case is that more than two dozen media companies, including the Idaho Statesman newspaper and several TV stations, have filed a petition asking the Idaho Supreme Court to remove the wide-sweeping gag order. The petition was filed Monday evening, and it asks Lataw County District Court and Judge Megan Marshall to vacate the gag order that was issued last month in the case. The initial gag order prohibited law enforcement and attorneys for the prosecution and defense from talking to the media. The gag order was later increased to include attorneys for witnesses, victims, and their families from sharing information about the case publicly. The petition to remove the order was filed by Boise attorney Wendy Olson on behalf of the news outlets, and Olson's arguing that the order is restraining petitioners' rights to gather and publish information about this newsworthy matter. Olson said that the judge issued the gag order without a hearing and without including factual findings to establish why such an order would be necessary. So we shall see what comes of that. Ah, that's the end of the updates. So I'll bid you adieu and say, until the next time on Bed Crime Stories, did I help you here with anything? If so, smash that like button, subscribe, leave me a comment, consider a membership, and I'll see you next time.